Acts chapter 13. As you make your way there, uh, we are dealing with a large passage today, a long section of the text, which is great. I find great comfort in that because the, the word promises that the word of God goes forth and it never returns void. And so I tell myself that the more Bible is going out, the better, because there are promises attached to this. And as we read, I want to just kind of set the context so that you hear this as you should. Um, right now, we're following Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And so over the last few weeks, we watched in verses 1 to 3 as the church prayed for them and commissioned them and sent them. And then we watched as they went and they, they began their missionary journey and we learned some lessons from launching out. But now here we see them moving into the region of Galatia and Paul and Barnabas are going to go into the synagogue as was their custom. And what we find is the sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue. And so if you ask the question, well, why did Luke record this passage? The answer is all throughout Paul's missionary journeys, in every city he goes to, he goes first to the synagogue. If there is a synagogue, that's where he starts. And in every other passage in Acts, we're told he went into the synagogue and he preached. And then it moves on to the response. But it leaves you asking, well, what did he preach? What was the, what was the message? How did Paul evangelize to the Jews in these synagogues? Well, here in our text today, we find out what it is that Paul preached. Luke has recorded something of a, a sample sermon so that we can see how Paul evangelized in the synagogues. And so we're going to read this and we're going to learn a few things. We're going to learn, first of all, you know, what it was that Paul said as he evangelized his people. Um, and so from that, we're going to draw out some lessons in our own evangelism, though most of us probably won't be invited to preach in a synagogue. Still, there are lessons here that we can apply as we evangelize our, our neighbors, our coworkers. So we're going to see that. But then ultimately, we're going to be reminded of the one true glorious gospel, uh, which all of us need to be reminded of again and again and again. So as we look to the text, we're going to begin in verse 13. And I just want to invite you just to envision Paul and Barnabas moving into this new region of Galatia. They're going to make their way into the synagogue and Paul is going to be invited to preach. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, 
the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We're going to stop there and pick up in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is a a large text, as I said. We're taking a, a big bite um, but as we pull apart this sermon, we, we can condense it. We can see that Paul's making a, a, a pretty simple yet profound point. And so this morning, I want to just zoom your attention in on this sermon itself, and we're going to consider it, and we'll see three elements in it. First, I want to draw your attention to the approach. Again, Luke has recorded this to help us to understand how Paul evangelized his people. What did he say when he spoke to the Jews? Well, in verse 15, we're told that In this synagogue service, they read from the law and the prophets, as was the custom. And then, as was the custom, they saw that they had a guest, a rabbi from out of town. Uh, Paul would have introduced himself to people in the city and before the service. And so they they said, well, Paul, we we would welcome you to stand up and, and to teach and give any instructions that you might have for us. And as I reflected on the sermon this week, I just, I thought, man, the staff meeting the following week would have been an interesting one, right? You know, some, someone says, a student of Gamaliel, huh? This will be a good idea, huh? Let's let Paul speak, huh? Well, they let Paul speak, and they gave him the floor, and, and he spoke. And he uh, preached a sermon that really flipped the city on its head. I want to help you see the, the way that he came into this text, because there's so much wisdom here. First of all, it looks, it appears in all the commentaries, commentators attest that Paul seems to have picked up something from the readings as they read the Law and the Prophets. Paul seems to have picked up a theme from those readings and then used that to explain the gospel. And it, it appears, and most commentators speculate, the reading was probably from 2 Samuel 7, the reading from the Prophets. 2 Samuel 7 is the passage that highlights God's covenant with David, the promise that he would give to him an eternal kingdom. And so Paul's strategy is simple. He's going to start on this common ground. He's going to take this text that they're already considering, and then he's going to demonstrate how these promises that they've been unpacking all point forward to and land on Jesus. That's the approach. 
And so in his opening remarks in verses 16 to 19, if you look down there, you can see him pointing back to the time of the patriarchs, pointing back to the the fathers. And what he's doing here is he's establishing common ground. You can see in those texts, he's, he's using we and us and our language talking about how how God chose our fathers and he delivered us out of Egypt and he even bore with us in our grumbling and complaining. And what Paul is doing here is he's identifying with the listeners. He's saying, hey, this this is our story. What, What I'm about to share with you, this is not just me bringing something in foreign. This is us. This is God's plan for us. And so he progresses forward in verses 20 to 22, drawing their attention to the time of the judges the time of the kings, and, and talks about how God gave them King Saul and he reigned for 40 years, but how eventually as God removed Saul, he gave them David, the king after God's own heart. And at this point, everybody in the synagogue is, is nodding along and saying, yes, this is, very, this is very helpful, Saul. Thank you for this summary, Paul. We, we're loving this. But then he turns a corner. In verses 23 to 40, he draws their attention to John the Baptist who declared the arrival of Jesus. Jesus, the one that we've been waiting for. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to just help you see how he realizes his listeners are going to struggle with this. This is the new news. Everybody who was nodding like this is suddenly going, wait a second. And so he loops back around. You can see it in verses 23, or verses 20, 35 to 36. He knows that his listeners are going to struggle to identify Jesus as the one that they've been waiting for. So he, he makes his argument. And he makes his argument by pointing them back to this common ground, by pointing them back to the Old Testament. He says, therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Now, if you're reading through that quickly, you might wonder what Paul's doing. But he's quoting here Psalm 16. And he's just highlighted the fact that God gave us King David and everyone in the room is like, yes, we love David. And they've been talking about God's promise to David and everybody's so thrilled that the king after God's own heart, yes, he gave us David. And in Psalm 16, a psalm that David wrote, he talks about the Holy One who won't see corruption. And everybody's like, yes, amen. But then he says, but David, David died, remember? And he was buried and actually David, David did see corruption, So then in Psalm 16, when he talks about this holy one, David couldn't have been talking about himself. And everybody in the room would be thinking, well, well, that's true. He's he's begged a question now from their their scriptures. And they're thinking, well, hmm. And then having raised the question, he proceeds to say, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But... He whom God raised up did not see corruption. See here, Paul, he's met them on their ground. He's raised questions from from the scriptures and now he's, he's pointing them to Jesus. He's saying, is it possible that you've missed something? See, when God made his promise to David in, in 2 Samuel 7, everybody had this assumption that this eternal kingdom that had been promised to David meant that there would perpetually be a king in the line of David on the throne. That was how it was taken to to mean. And so they assume, well, you know, David will have a son and he will have a son and there will always be a king on the throne. But now Paul is pointing them back to Psalm 16 and he says, no, actually, when God promised an eternal kingdom to this Messiah, he wasn't just saying that it would be, you know, 
a series of sons who die from the line of David. No, he pointed us to a holy one who wouldn't see corruption. Who do you think that is? And now he's got their attention. So you see the approach? So he's got them asking questions. He's meeting them on common ground. And then we see he leans in with the press. That's the second thing I want you to see in the passage. He leans in with the press. He points them to Jesus. He wasted no time turning to Christ and him crucified. In verses 27 to 28, he says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Pause there. He says, listen, in Jerusalem, Jesus was there. But you know what the problem was? They did not recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 16. They did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah King. Even though we, we declare these prophets week after week in the Sabbath, they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. Therefore, they fulfilled these prophecies by condemning him. Verse 28, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So he looks at this room full of his, his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he says, Our Messiah came, and we crucified him. We crucified him. We hung him on a cross, and then we laid him in a tomb. In spite of his innocence, in fulfillment of, of the scriptures, what the prophets told us would happen, we killed the Messiah King. But then he turns the corner, doesn't he? He says, But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And so he looks at this room and he says, Listen, I have some glorious news. Yes, we put him to death, but that was in fulfillment of the scriptures. And in fulfillment of the scriptures, he didn't stay in the grave. He is risen. Christ was crucified, but Christ is risen. This is the good news that Paul proclaimed in every synagogue in which he preached. And it's the good news that you and I are called to proclaim as we go out into the world. And Paul proceeds to flesh out the implications of this good news. Why is this such glorious news? It's because we cannot be in relationship with God apart from our Messiah King, Jesus. Which is what he says in verses 38 to 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now the word translated here in your Bible as freed is the Greek word. It's the same Greek word for justified, justification. This is perhaps Paul's favorite word in describing and explaining the gospel. What is justification? One commentator explains To declare righteous or justify means to acquit someone in a trial in which accusations of being guilty of wrongdoing have been made. To pronounce and treat the accused person as righteous. So Paul looks out at this room of his brothers and sisters and he says, Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that we are guilty. We have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul would later write to the Romans, this isn't just his him and his room of listeners. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul understands that there is a problem that each and every one of us has. It's the problem of sin. And and perhaps there are some of us in the room today and, and we're not even mindful of how significant this problem is. Maybe you're not feeling the weight of your sin. You're not feeling the weight of your guilt. 
But whether you feel it or not, one day we will all stand before God who is holy and perfect and righteous. And and every part of our lives will be laid bare before him. Every thought we've thought, every word we've spoken, everything we've done, everything we should have done but didn't do, all of that will one day be laid before him. And Paul says to his listeners, he says, and on that day, there is only one way for us to receive forgiveness, and that is through Jesus, our Messiah, who died in our place and then rose from the dead. If we believe in him, we can be justified. But if we do not believe in him, realize the law of Moses cannot set us free. That's what he says here. He says, the law of Moses cannot bring forgiveness for our sins. Now, the law is good. Elsewhere, Paul says, the law is good. But what is the law good for? The law is good in that it is like a lamp that reveals the the glory of God and reveals the way that we are to live. The law is good insofar as it's like a mirror. Like as we read through the Old Testament, as we look at the, the Ten Commandments, it's like a mirror. It shines on us and it shows us all the ways that we actually fall short. All the ways that we are not what we ought to be. The law is good as a light. It's good as a mirror. But the law can't bring dead people to life. In that way, the law is insufficient. And Paul says, but brothers, sisters, I have some glorious news for you. God has sent his son, Jesus, and in him there is justification. In him there is righteousness applied to us. There is forgiveness for sins. One commentator summarizes, Paul's main point is clear. The forgiveness that God provides through Jesus is total forgiveness. An acquittal from everything, without exception that separates sinners from a righteous God. That's why we call it gospel. What does gospel mean? Anybody tell me? Good news. That's what, the, that's what it means. It is good news. Maybe somebody's here today and you need to hear this news. An acquittal from everything. When we come to Jesus and we look to him and we confess our sin and believe in him, God places all of our sin, you know, the stuff that we call the little stuff and the stuff we call the big stuff, he puts all of our sin on Christ and it's paid for on the cross and we bear it no more. And then God puts Christ's righteousness and he applies it to us. And Paul preaches this message again and again and again everywhere he goes. But he doesn't leave them just with the announcement. He calls them to action. And so I want you to look again in your Bible. We're going to read now the the end of his sermon and the response to this sermon. Verses 40, I'm going to read all the way to 52. So after explaining the gospel, after beginning on common ground, pointing them to Jesus, he then looks at his brothers and sisters. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. 
And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right, this brings us to the response. So Paul warns them. He, he points to Malachi 1. And upon preaching this sermon, he looks out at his listeners and he says, in the same way that Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem, in the same way that they failed to recognize him and they failed to see in him the fulfillment of the prophets, so too, I'm declaring here in this room that Jesus is the Messiah that you've been waiting for, that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him, that he is the son of David and we must accept him. And then he warns them, don't let this be true of you. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul just looks out in mercy and he says, brothers, sisters, don't let that be you. Don't be the one who receives this good news and just has it fly right over your head or bounce off of your hard heart. Don't let that be you. You know, Paul speaks firmly and fiercely to his people, the Jews. But we need to recognize that Paul loves his people. He loves his people. Later in, in his letter to the Romans, Paul says, and it's so profound, he says, I, if I could be accursed that my people would be saved, I would do it. Paul says, if, he says, I would go to hell myself if that meant that my brothers and my sisters, the Jewish people, would put their trust in Jesus. Paul loves his people, but it's his love for them that compels him to speak the truth with clarity. He was fierce and he was firm, direct in his evangelism, and we should be too. Heaven and hell are at stake. Everlasting life, everlasting death hang in the balance. So Paul met his listeners on common ground. He led them to Jesus, and then he called for a response, and we read that many believed Praise God. Many believed. In fact, they, by the time the next Sabbath came along, the whole city was gathered together to hear Paul preach. But the Jewish leaders in the city grew jealous. And they stirred up the people and they drove Paul and Barnabas out. And as they left, Paul and Barnabas declared in verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And here again, we see this pattern uh, that we've already seen in the book of Acts, that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, that Paul went to the Jewish people first. Last week, we talked about one of the reasons for that. You know, one of the reasons why he went to them first is because no one was better positioned, better prepared to recognize Jesus than the Jews. They were steeped in the scriptures. They had memorized the promises. So Paul went into them first and he held up Jesus and he said, look, he is the one you've been waiting for. So he went to the Jews first because he expected fruit, but also he went to the Jews first because this was their promise to be realized. Right? This was everything that they had been longing for. So he went to them first to say, this is our story, brothers and sisters, do you see? One commentator explains, the people of the promise must be the first to hear about the fulfillment of God's promises to the fathers. So Paul goes to the Jews in every city and he says, this is your good news. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to you. Don't miss this. And many Jews in every city he went put their trust in Jesus, but many turned away. And so having 
preached the gospel to the Jews, he then turned to the nations because God's plan includes the whole world. And then as he exited the city, we read, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they went to Iconium. This was a common practice. Um, As Jews walked out of pagan cities, they would brush off the dust from their sandals as a way of of just saying, you know, you're unclean, you're the outsiders and we're moving on. So, Paul walking away from these Jewish people in brushing off the dust from his sandals is making a powerful statement. He's saying, he's saying, as you reject Jesus, you are no longer the children of the promise. If you reject the Messiah, you're no longer the people of God. You are now the outsiders. And that's what he's saying as he brushes off the dust from his sandals. So that's the sermon. It's a, it's a big sermon. Luke has included this because he wants us to understand the the type of evangelism that Paul was doing in the synagogues. But as we conclude and as we kind of press in a little deeper, I want to try and draw out some lessons for us. So we read this and we're reminded afresh of the gospel and we're reminded afresh of, of how we can evangelize. Maybe you've got a Jewish neighbor or a coworker. This would be a great place for you to turn as you think about how to reach them, how to speak to them. But I would tell you, this is also a great place for us to turn as we think about how to evangelize our other neighbors, our other co-workers. So I want to close with one practical question, which is, what can we learn from this example about our evangelistic approach? The first lesson is an obvious one. I'm going to pull out three lessons for us as we conclude. First, begin on common ground and bring your listeners to Jesus. That is, that's the approach that we see modeled here. Paul goes into a synagogue, and where does he begin? He begins by opening the Old Testament. He, says, I'm gonna, he wants them to see that this is, this is your story, but you need to see that this is our story. This is the story. But that wasn't unique to Paul's ministry to the Jews. If you flip ahead in your Bible to Acts 17, I want you to see this with me. Acts 17, verses 22 to 23. Here Paul is not ministering to the Jews. He's in Athens. And look at his approach. Same thing. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. See what Paul's doing? It's the same thing. Paul, he moves into the community and he he starts on common ground. He walks through and he looks at their altars. And then he finds a place where, like a launching pad, an altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, okay, we're going to start here. And he addresses them and he he commends them. You're religious. I can see that. You're thinking about these spiritual things. I can see that. And I see that you worship this unknown God. Can I tell you something? I know who this unknown God is. Let me teach you about him. He's beginning on common ground. This is what he commended when he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, I want to be careful that you hear this appropriately because this could be misapplied. You could misapply this and say, well, yeah, so when you go into a culture and they don't like what the Bible says about this, you just cut that out of the Bible. Become all things to all people. Oh, they don't like this part of the gospel about sin? That's fine, lose it. All things to all people. No, that's not the right approach because... When Paul writes to these same Galatians later, he says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Meaning, the message doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. 
The gospel offends every culture, and we proclaim it in every culture. The gospel doesn't change. But what's he saying then? He's saying, while the message doesn't change, our approach can and should and must change. As we bring this gospel into the world, we need to recognize that every person we talk to is unique and distinct. I mean, practically speaking, maybe you've got a coworker and, and they're just a, a staunch atheist. Well, you're going to speak to your staunch atheist coworker differently than you will to your cousin who's just become really disenfranchised by the church and has got some wounds they're working through, right? They're asking different questions. They've got different objections. So naturally, you're going to speak to them differently as you will speak differently to your Muslim neighbor. It, all of these different people in our lives are going to require a different approach. Which means to be a good evangelist, you need to learn how to listen. And I'll just say that again, because this is important. As we go and we seek to evangelize the world, part of that means we need to learn how to listen to people. We need to learn how to observe what they're going through, what, what they're wrestling with, what, what are the felt needs that they're seeing in their life, the things that they're, they're scratching and searching for answers to. We should be adept at trying to find those things, trying to get to the root of those things, and meeting them there on that common ground. I mean, so, for example, even with our, we see this in our Sunday morning service. There are, some churches will keep the kids in during the sermon, some will send them out. Both are great churches. There's no right or wrong answer to this. But maybe you wonder, well, why do we send our kids out? Is it because they're noisy? No, I actually love that they're noisy. It's good for us to have some noise. No, we send them out because you preach the gospel differently to a five-year-old than you do to a 55-year-old. You preach the gospel differently to an eight-year-old than you do to an 18-year-old. The gospel doesn't change, but the way that we approach that, the way that we present that does change. And so praise God, we've got gifted preachers and teachers and leaders who are sharing the gospel with those kids in a package that, that makes sense to them. Right? And we do this in our evangelism in the world. We need to be humble enough to adapt, to empathize. We're going to become all things to all people that by all means we might save some. Thursday night we're learning how to share the gospel in our Life Together programming. And I praise God, those of you who are attending, I'm so glad you're there. When you come out of that, that program, hopefully you will have a, a deeper understanding of the gospel Hopefully you'll have a, a greater confidence in being able to communicate the gospel. But can I break some news to you? What you won't come out with is a one-size-fits-all spiel that you can tell to all the people you meet. You won't come out with that, right? Because everybody you meet is different. So find the felt need. Find the common ground. Start there. But then from there, lead them to the gospel, the, the gospel that's once for all delivered to the saints. Point them to Jesus with all your might. That's the first lesson we learn in this example. The second lesson that we learn is a painful lesson, but we need to see it. In evangelism, we need to recognize that there is a time to move on. There's a time to move on. You know, perhaps it would be hard for us if we were in Paul's shoes. Many of us, maybe as you walk out of the city and you're, you're brushing off the dust from your sandals, how many of us would be wondering, have I done enough? Am I a coward? Am I quitting just because this is hard? Right, those are the kind of things we wrestle with all the time. But Paul and Barnabas, they walked out, they brushed off the dust from their sandals and they moved to the next town. G. Campbell Morgan, wonderful old preacher, observes here, the principle involved in that statement is that when people have heard the offer of the age-abiding life through the crucified Christ, if they will not accept it, it is the duty of the prophet, the apostle, the evangelist to turn to others. And boy, that's a difficult lesson. 
So let me just ask you a question. Let's think this through in our own personal lives. I want you to imagine someone that you have been sharing the gospel with in your life. Someone that you've been having conversations with, you've been pressing in, you've been trying, you've, you maybe even invited them out to church or inviting them for coffee and try, trying to get them to study the Bible. Think of that person and pause. If you can't think of a person that you've been sharing the gospel with over the last year, then I would, I would actually challenge you this morning. There should be somebody coming to your mind, right? This, we've got this amazing news. We should be sharing this with the people in our lives. So if you can't think of someone, there's your takeaway today. There should be someone. Find them. But if you can think of someone, let me ask you a follow-up question. Is this the same person that you were working with this time last year? What about two years ago? What about five years ago? Have you been been wrestling through with with the same person for, for the last five years? If so, perhaps it's time to shake the dust from your sandals and to turn your attention elsewhere. Let me ask the question that's popping up right now. Well, what about my family? Great question. Obviously, this doesn't apply to your family. God has bound you together to your family, right? So if you've got an unsaved family member, uh, then as long as they got breath in their lungs, that's your assignment. You give them all that you got, okay? So not telling you to write off your children. But, but I am talking about coworker Bob. Maybe coworker Bob, you've just been... You've been going back and forth with coworker Bob for years and years and years. But he'll, he'll send you a YouTube video about this conspiracy or... or or send you a YouTube video about why you can't trust the Bible, or, and you've just been going back, back and forth, on and on, giving him all of your focus, all of your attention for five years now. Uh, the lesson here is that perhaps it's time to turn away from coworker Bob to coworker Steve, right? Perhaps rather than spending your whole life trying to slam one seed through a solid brick of granite, perhaps you need to pull back and start throwing the seed elsewhere and see what will land in good soil. That's what Paul does in his ministry. Now, as I say that, let's be clear. That doesn't mean that God's done with coworker Bob. God's not done. God's always working. But it might mean that, that your time with coworker Bob is done. Your time with that neighbor is done. And you need to focus elsewhere. And as I say that, I want to remind you, this is one of the details that I loved from this passage, and I didn't know where to include it. It fits here, though. If you read this sermon, and then you look back at the sermon that Stephen preached right before he was stoned, One of the things that the commentators will show you, and you'll see it yourself, is that there is a great deal of overlap between what Paul says and what Stephen said. So much of it is is almost verbatim. And the amazing takeaway here is, you know, Stephen, when he was preaching that day, he looked out and he saw Paul, who was then um, referred to by Saul. He saw him, and, and Saul was not interested, right? If you were to poke Stephen that day and say, hey, what do you think about that guy? Do you think he's getting the message? Stephen would say, I don't think so, right? Paul then watched the coats while they stoned Stephen to death. I don't think that Stephen was looking at Paul thinking, oh, this is really breaking through. And yet, isn't it fascinating? Here, over 10 years later, Paul stands up to preach and what comes out of his mouth? Almost verbatim, the sermon that he heard from Stephen that day. Meaning sometimes, even though you feel like you were just trying to press that seed through granite and you walk away thinking, oh, well, what a waste of my life. What a waste of my time. God's not done. God's not done. He wasn't done with Paul. Stephen didn't get to see the fruit of that sermon. But there was fruit. It, it resonated. It was ringing out. You know, some of us, we've got, you've got coworkers, you've got neighbors, you've got your loved ones. And you wonder like, man, it just seems like they're not interested at all. Can I tell you? Those things that you've said, they're reverberating in hearts and minds right now even if you can't see it. Paul had heard Stephen's defense and he had never escaped the power of it. So it may be time to move on, but that doesn't mean you've failed. 
Remind yourself that God's not done. Turn your attention to the next person that God's placed in your life. And as you do that, finally, our last lesson, trust that God is already working. I want to draw your attention to this last amazing detail in verse 48. Look with me there. He says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Boy, it'd be easy to rush right past that verse, but that is profound. One commentator notes, all who were appointed to eternal life believed suggests that belief in Christ is not just a matter of one's faith, but primarily involves divine appointment. So the theological term for what we're describing here is election or predestination. So if you want a category to frame this under, that's, you think that way. If I can be honest, this idea right here, this doctrine, what we're seeing in this verse is something that in my younger years, I didn't believe and in fact, I despised. So I'll just be, maybe you're here today and you're like, oh man, here we go. I'll t- in my younger years, that was me. I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around this doctrine. I would read a verse like this and it would, instead of inspiring me, it would make me angry. It felt to me like this doctrine undermines evangelism. I'd walk away from a verse like this saying, well, if all who were appointed believed, then what's the point in preaching? What's the point in going? Why do we do anything at all? God's just going to do what God's going to do. That was, that was what I said in my earlier years. I thought this undermined evangelism. But can I tell you, now that I've spent more time just studying the word of God and he's opening my eyes to see, I can tell you the exact opposite is true. This doctrine doesn't undermine evangelism. It emboldens it. Paul, think about him, so he goes and he preaches in Galatia, and as he preaches, he knows that there are men and women and boys and girls in this city who are going to believe. He knows that God has put people in this city, and he's given them ears to hear, and he's given them eyes to see, and so Paul goes in there with confidence, and he just lets it rip. He knows that everyone who has been set apart, everyone who's been predestined to believe, will believe. They will be glorified, which is, by the way, exactly what he says in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I recognize whenever you touch on this particular doctrine, it raises all kinds of questions. Questions that, can I tell you, we're not going to answer this morning because we're getting late. But but what I want you to see is I want you to see the tremendous confidence that we can draw from this verse and this truth. I remember Pastor Paul uh, Carter from Cornerstone, when I was that angry young man who didn't believe this and didn't like this, I remember him using an analogy that stuck with me, and I want to share it with you. He said, think of this doctrine almost like a dog whistle. So imagine you walk into a park and you've got this dog whistle and you stand up and you blow it. What's going to happen with all the people around you? Well, they're just going to keep walking by, right? They don't hear a thing. And all the birds are going to keep flying and chirping and the kids are going to keep playing unbothered. But as you blow that whistle, all of the dogs that are in the radius of that whistle are going to perk up and they're going to look to you. You're going to see their ears. You're going to see their eyes. They're focused. You've got them, right? This whistle is attuned for them. He says, well, in the same way, this doctrine of predestination teaches that there are people who will respond to the gospel in the same way that a dog responds to the dog whistle. God has given them ears to hear this message. God has given them eyes to recognize the glory and the scandal of the cross. And Paul believed this. 
He believed that everywhere he went, he would encounter men and women who had been prepared in advance to hear and to believe the gospel. And so he preached. He preached, even though in in every city he went, there were people who rejected him and thought he was a fool and mocked him. He preached, even though oftentimes they would throw rocks at him at the city. In fact, in in one of the chapters coming up, they're going to leave him for dead outside the city. And what is he going to do? He's going to get back up and he's going to go preach in the next one. He preached even though every time he left the city, he had mountains of failure behind him, and yet he kept on preaching. Why is that? Because this doctrine doesn't undermine evangelism, it empowers it. He kept going because he knew that in spite of all of the rejection, there were people who were just waiting for him to blow the whistle. And so he went, and he let it rip, city after city. And it's true for us. In your workplace, in your, on your street, you can know that there are people who, and you don't know who they are, and they don't know who they are, but they are just waiting for someone to blow the whistle. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've, of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet Of those who preach the good news. The text says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's what God's word says. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have been predestined. According to, to what? To what we do? No. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what God says in his word. So my question for you as we go away from this place is, Do you believe him? Do you believe this? And I, the younger me, if I was sitting in the room, I'd be shaking my head saying, I don't, I don't yet believe it. And maybe there's another person like that in the room. And I would plead with you, just look again at his word and do you see it? This is a game changer. If you can wrap your heart and your mind around this, this is going to embolden you. It's going to take all of your excuses, all of your fears about evangelism, and it's going to run them through the shredder. Because if this is true, then it doesn't matter that I'm not eloquent with my words. Now, it doesn't matter that I don't have the answers to every single question that anyone might ask. It doesn't matter that I'm clumsy or I'm awkward. It doesn't matter that, it doesn't matter at all because if God has prepared that person to respond to the gospel, then all they need is for someone to open their mouth and to say, here it is. And so I'm going to do it. And, and, if, and they'll believe if they're meant to believe. And if they're not, they might throw rocks at me. They did that to Paul. But that's fine because I believe that wherever I go, there are people who are just waiting, who are just one conversation away from their eyes lighting up and their ears perking up and their hearts turning from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. I believe and so I preach. Paul believed and so he preached. And they had the privilege of watching all of these eyes light up again and again. Even though people threw stones at them, they saw others come to life. And so as they walked out of the city, even though they were forced out, we read, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Boy, there is no greater joy than that which comes from leading someone to Christ. And if you're here today and you've never experienced that joy, could I just, I want you to walk away from this hungering for it. There's nothing like it. Being able to to speak to someone and have them see that there is life and there is forgiveness and there is eternal life and heaven and glory and wonder and for them to see Jesus and all of these questions that have been rattling around are finding their answers in Christ and they're crying and they're happy and there's nothing like it. And you don't need to be the Apostle Paul to have that joy and that privilege. 
How will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? So go and, and just go for it, brothers and sisters. Go into your workplace, your neighborhood, and blow the whistle. Preach the gospel to anyone who will listen. Share the hope that you have and watch what God does. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. And I'm reminded that uh, as we wade into these waters, we can't ever touch the bottom. Uh, These mysteries of the gospel, these mysteries of your providence, your sovereignty. We, We can't just tie a neat little bow around these doctrines. And in our pride and in our flesh, Lord, we often want to. So there's probably people here today who are wrestling with this. And, and, and Lord, just because we can't fit it into this tidy little box in our minds, we're tempted to reject it outright. But God, I thank you that we can't fit you into a tiny little box in our minds. You are the great and glorious, awesome God. And your works, they defy our understanding. Lord, you don't answer to us. Um, and we thank you, Lord, that what you've shown us in your word is that you, in your grace, in your mercy, you bring dead people to life. In your grace and in your mercy, you take unbelieving hearts and in an instant, Lord, you give them faith. You take hearts of stone that felt like granite, that just there was no reception to the gospel and you remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And you can do that in an instant. You turn the terrorists all into the Apostle Paul. You turn this rebel into the preacher at Redeemer. Lord, and, and it's true for every one of us in this room. All of us walked in our trespasses and sin, lost, without hope. It's your grace that that has us here in this place. God, I pray that you would help us not to be those who hoard this grace. God, help us to share the hope that we have. I pray that you'd break our hearts for the, the lost that are all around us. I pray that we would see more and more of this zeal that we find in the Apostle Paul in ourselves. That we'd be willing to put ourselves in situations where we would be rebuked, where we would be mocked, where we would be embarrassed. All for the hope that as we proclaim the gospel, you will draw more men and women to yourself. Lord, they deserve, you deserve their praise, Lord, and we want them to hear this hope and this news. So help us, God. I pray that we would go not with guilt, not with shame. Lord, those don't motivate us. But Lord, I pray that we would go with just a zeal for your name. Lord, with gratitude in our hearts for all that you've done. Lord, and with a desire to see that, that praise just expanding in our city. So God, we pray these things in your great and glorious name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?